From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm David Schultz. One of the biggest proponents of creating new regulations for cryptocurrency was a guy by the name of Sam Bankman-Fried. Perhaps you've heard of him. Up until very recently, he was the head of FTX, one of the most prominent crypto exchanges in the world. That is, until he put it into bankruptcy and resigned earlier this month. The dramatic collapse has only highlighted just how unregulated this space really is. But there are folks looking to change that, not just here in the U.S., but on the international level. The OECD, in fact, designed a new plan called CARF, or the Crypto Asset Reporting Framework, that would standardize how different countries share tax information related to cryptocurrency. And that framework got a big boost last month when it won the endorsement of the G20 finance ministers. Today, we have on two of the folks who helped develop CARF, Paul Hondius and Arthur Olszewski with the OECD's Center for Tax Policy and Administration. They started talking with Bloomberg Tax's Sean Courtney about whether CARF could have prevented some of the problems we're seeing now in the crypto space. And Arthur started off by talking about exactly what CARF would do. At a very high level, the CARF, or the Crypto Asset Reporting Framework, uh, it's a tax reporting framework that can be implemented by countries around the world uh, for the reporting and exchange of information on crypto assets. So, you know, why did we do this? And the, the main reason was, of course, the rapid development of the crypto asset market, and because countries are slowly but surely beginning to define substantive tax rules to address the tax treatment of crypto assets. Uh, in particular, you know, crypto assets, as we know, they're very global and highly mobile as, a, as an asset class. And so with that in mind, purely domestic measures uh, of jurisdictions were really not enough to, to ensure transparency with respect of crypto asset transactions and holdings. And so we needed an international framework to, to tackle this issue. Uh, so, so with that in mind, what we've developed so far is the CARF rules and, and commentary, which uh, identify the crypto assets in scope, the intermediaries, uh, the information to be reported, as well as the taxpayer documentation requirements. Uh, as the next step, we'll be complementing uh, these rules and commentary with an international framework for the exchange of the information collected, as well as a broader implementation uh, package. Can you give me a sense of the, the timing on that? Yeah, so we've already started work uh, on the package. So that'll include, of course, the exchange of information framework, some IT solutions to support it. So including the XML schema, as we do for similar standards um, in this space as well as a further elaboration of the CARF effective implementation requirements. So those three things we're working on now, uh, I would say uh, Q2, Q3 of, of 2023 in terms of when we'll have that uh, ready for uh, for public consumption. Okay, so stay tuned. Um, and then then maybe, Paul, you could tackle my, my other question, which is, you know, what doesn't CARF do? Can you um, maybe resolve some confusion that might exist? Or can you kind of explain um, where there are limits to what either you have chosen to do or able to to do with CARF? So I think of the uh, a lot of the both positive and negative questions about the scope are already contained in the title of the framework itself. So it's a reporting framework. I think that by nature means that what we're trying to do is to get standardized information on crypto asset transactions to the jurisdictions in which the taxpayers live that transact and hold crypto assets. What it then, of course, doesn't do is it doesn't uh, regulate the crypto asset sector uh, from a regulatory or AML perspective. There are distinct initiatives in many levels in countries and also at the level of the European Union ongoing uh, that try to regulate the crypto asset sector 
um, in, in a manner similar to the traditional financial sector, and that is something that the CARF does not intend to do. It does build, however, on that because many of the uh, documentation requirements in relation to crypto asset users, um, but it does not seek to regulate in the strict sense of the word the crypto asset sector. Right. So it's, it's leaving room for individual countries to still obviously have a lot of control over the the choices they make for their tax systems, but it's trying to create a, a path that everyone can can follow in this, this quickly changing uh, universe. Um, and then I wonder, Arthur, uh, if you could speak a little bit to the why now? Why why are we seeing this effort now? You know, there are other regulatory efforts, uh, for instance, at the at the EU level, where they are also looking at crypto. There was uh, the the stunning collapse of of FTX. We've seen other changes in the crypto market. Can you can you explain why this particular policy proposal or a set of regulations is uh, is important now? Yes, indeed. So, so I think indeed the timing may seem a bit odd given the, the recent downturn in the crypto market. Of course, the work on this has started a few years ago, uh, back when uh, values of crypto assets were, were quite a bit different than they are now. But I think the main reason, of course, is the, the fact that more and more users are getting involved in this market. There's more and more individuals uh, as well as financial uh, intermediaries getting involved in holding and transacting in, in crypto assets. And in tandem, more and more jurisdictions, I think as Paul and I touched on already, are introducing substantive tax rules to address the tax treatment of crypto assets. And so what this is intended to do is to give those countries with the visibility and the information to then go ahead and, and apply those uh, those tax rules. So I think for those primarily for those two reasons, uh, the OECD was called upon uh, by the G20 uh, to develop the CARF and and to bring transparency essentially to, to crypto markets. Mm. Speaking of transparency, I think one of the the whys uh, that you know this needed to happen was there's still concern about money laundering and tax evasion. And I wondered if you've been able to quantify um, whether the crypto space has become a place where people are trying to evade taxation or launder money, if you're able to determine whether new tax standards and reporting requirements will um, be able to kind of rein that in. Um, and then like the illicit activity that is happening, is it just shifting from other places where AML efforts have been, anti-money laundering efforts have been successful? Or is this a brand new swath of, of uh, activity that we haven't seen previously? Uh, so, you know, I'd probably start with given the fact that this this market is, is still very opaque, it's quite difficult to put a specific, uh, you know, amount or quantum on what the tax gap actually is in the crypto space. But, you know, of course, it's clear based on the recent growth of the market and the numerous reports of illicit activity that, you know, this is very widely used uh, both by retail players and, and large, sophisticated uh, investors. And in some instances, there are uh, there are certainly uh, activities that, that indeed fall into the category of tax evasion or uh, or money laundering, you know, and, and with that in mind, efforts need to be made at uh, various fronts to ensure that there is a level playing field uh, in terms of uh, how this market is, is, is regulated and how it is indeed made more transparent. Uh, and I think, you know, that the effects of the policy of the CARF in particular uh, will be seen when it does go live. And so I think what we may see from tax administrations are voluntarily disclosure programs to, uh, to, to, to encourage taxpayers to come clean if they do have, if they did hide something over, over the previous years. And and I think then we'll, we'll truly see the value of the information that is that is being exchanged. At the same time, as a general matter, I'd say that in the income tax space, there are studies that show that the non-compliance rate go, goes down quite significantly when 
income is subject to to third party reporting. Got it. Well, and and speaking of tax administrations, you know, there were a lot of people who were involved in the negotiations to get to the point where you have this uh, proposal that you've put forward. Paul, I, I wonder about the U.S., you know, the common reporting standard the U.S. does not subscribe to. Uh, and this was purposely, to my understanding, created, the CARF was created outside of that framework, although you did make updates to the CRS as well, um, with the hopes that the, the U.S. would get on board with CARF. Do you, do you have expectations or hopes for how the U.S. will approach CARF? So I think first, firstly, on, on uh, and, and maybe crucially on, on, on that question, um, it is, I think, important for uh, listeners to understand that the U.S. is a OECD member. And so the United States was, of course, very closely involved from the very outset of this technical work in the design and development of the CARF. The U.S. is obviously also a member of the G20. And therefore, the October uh, statement that uh, was uh, published uh, following the finance minister meeting was also endorsed by the United States. And that statement very clearly um, states that the CARF should be part of the global standard on automatic exchange of information and uh, that the G20 endorses the work that we have done. Um, And that certainly uh, includes the United States. And so I think Uh, The CARF is a product that has the support of the United States. um, And now that we go into implementation, uh, that is also very much the premise on which we approach implementation uh, of the CARF. That was Paul Hondius and Arthur Olszewski with the OECD Center for Tax Policy Administration, speaking with Bloomberg Tax's Sean Courtney. And that's it for today's podcast. You can find up-to-the-minute news and the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. The website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz, Rachel Daigle, and Meg Shreve, our editors. Our executive producer is Josh Block. From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. An individual's race should not be used to help him or harm him in his life's endeavors. A pair of lawsuits has made its way to the Supreme Court, and the decision could dramatically change just who gets into which college. Bloom is effectively using the Asian community as pawns. Every lawsuit needs a villain. To mask an anti-Black and anti-Latino agenda. Does this demoralize me? No, it doesn't demoralize me. This season on Uncommon Law, we'll explore the arguments and the people driving this latest battle over affirmative action. Can the Constitution be used to remedy society's ills? I'm the only person in class who has to raise my hand and say, okay, well, actually, here's how this affects people that look like me. Does the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause prohibit all discrimination based on race? You let somebody in because of their race, you're keeping somebody else out because of their race. There might have been two or three Latinos, including me. And so somehow that's too much, somehow that goes too far. It's hard not to take that very personally. Coming October 25th, part one of a three-part series on affirmative action. What's being decided is whether black and brown people are going to be excluded in significant numbers. Only on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.